good to be back at Beacon, and uh, even though we are closer in Orlando these days, serving the Lord there, it seems like we are here less often, just busy, busy. I was looking at the Beacon app, it seems like the last time I was able to preach here was about a year ago this month, uh, so um, just not here, able to be here very often. Uh, Hannah does send her greetings. Uh, she wished that she could have been here with me and uh, misses, you know, all of you, at least all of you who know her, all of you who she knows, so many new faces here every time. Uh, but she is back home with uh, three of our kids and then our two foster children who are with her there. And uh, she is um, at our church this morning and we'll be back this afternoon with her. Uh, but uh, everyone is doing well back there. Be in Job chapter 33, as we read a moment ago, there's a statement made in our text, which I'd like to draw your special attention to this morning, as we pose a question, a question which reveals who is truly on the throne of each and every one of our lives and our hearts. You notice in verse number 12, the scripture, the individual speaking, makes this statement at the end of the verse. He says, God is greater than man. Now, the words spoken here in this moment, are not by a very well-known individual. In fact, it may be a surprise to many of us who made this statement. I'm sure all of us this morning, we're well acquainted or mostly acquainted with the story of Job. We're, we're familiar with everything that he lost. He suffered greatly as a result of losing his wealth, his family, and then his health. Pouring on the injury, though, his three friends uh, come and they arrive to comfort him, only to begin berating him for some secret sin, which in their minds Job was refusing to acknowledge and confess to God. And they have, as a result, of course, gone down in history as miserable comforters. And a powerful lesson that when someone near us is hurting, Oftentimes, the last thing they need are our whimsical words or anything like that. Oftentimes, they just need us to be there as a reassuring friend, as a brother or a sister in Christ. This man who speaks now, though, is not one of those foolish friends. Instead, he's a young man. He's a younger man who has come near and listened to the back-and-forth debate. In fact, you'll notice back in chapter 32... Verse, verse 6, it says, And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Very old. I, I love that statement. You're very old, all of you who are here. Job and his three friends, they've gone back and forth, back and forth debating. And this young man, Elihu, has been sitting there listening, observing. We don't know for how long. Scripture doesn't tell us how long he's been there. But he's been there for some amount of time. As Job's friend accused him of sin and hypocrisy, Job defends his reputation, and right there witnessing the whole thing unfold, like a fly on the wall, so to speak, is this young man, Elihu. His words in the following chapters, they're, they're very different from the words of the three older men, who with Job have dominated the dialogue of this book. As you study this, this message that Elihu has, you notice that, for one thing, his message, it occupies a prominent place in this book. He, he speaks for five chapters going forward, which is unique in the book of Job. It's much more back and forth, much more discussion going. 
In addition to that, Elihu, unlike Job's friends, he's rather sympathetic to Job's suffering. In fact, you'll notice in verse number 7, he says, Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. I'm, I'm not going to be a miserable comforter to you, Job. My words are not going to be heavy on you. For another reason, he never claims to speak from experience. Rather, he actually claims to speak from revelation. He claims, to, he claims to speak from something that God has given to him. And the lesson for us there to take this morning and as Christians is that Scripture, the revelation of God, always trumps experience. It always trumps experience. God's Word is always correct. God's Word is always true. Experience, emotion, feeling, no. That changes all the time. In addition to that, Elihu, interestingly, he's not rebuked by God as Job's miserable comforters are at the end of this book. Elihu speaks, and immediately after, as you study the book of Job, you see that God then speaks right afterwards. Elihu is rather respectful in his dialogue, whereas Job's former buddies, they're like cranky and, and, and arrogant boomers talking down to him. Whenever I, I think of them, I always picture Rick, you know, Rick sitting there all cranky and arrogant. I don't know where he, there he is over there, cranky and arrogant sitting there like, you're just wrong, you're just wrong, Job. Repent, Job. Just like Rick would, right? In this regard, Elihu, he presents an important bit of instruction for us. And that is that age and experience don't always equate wisdom. Job and his three friends represent the old adage of experience is best. Often it is, but not always. These four have, have debated and argued back and forth for what is represented by multiple chapters oftentimes making big presumptions about God and the way that he works in our lives. Presumptions that aren't always true. Elihu seems to step on the scene and say, whoa there, guys. Wait a minute, gentlemen. Who are we to presume the way that God thinks? Who are we to presume how God works? I'm reminded of what the scripture says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. The word of God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. You know, we oftentimes, this is one of those verses that we oftentimes are guilty of yanking it out and holding it up out of context, putting it inside a, a, a greeting card, posting it on Facebook with a nice scenery of the beach behind it or something like that. My ways are not your ways. Pulling it totally out of context. You know, this verse does explain how God's ways of working our in our lives are beyond our understanding. They are indeed. However, the context of this passage has to do with the wicked repenting of their sin and God showing them mercy. And it's then that God says to the prophet, my thoughts are not the same as yours. My ways are not the same as yours. What better illustration could there be, ladies and gentlemen, of how incredible how incomparable the ways and thoughts of God, God are than to consider his mercy upon the sinner. I mean, if it were up to us, the wicked would continue on to the fire of hell regardless of how many times they repent, right? 
Let's be honest, we would not forgive the wicked around us, would we? And yet God, in his mercy, in his grace, extends, extends forgiveness to them. He extended forgiveness to us when we didn't deserve it. Isaiah's words are reminiscent of those spoken by Elihu. As he looks upon his audience, Job, his three cranky, arrogant boomer friends, whoever else is gathered there at this point to listen in. And Elihu simply says, God is greater. I hope you listen close. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to search your heart. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to speak to your heart this morning. As we consider this, this thought, this question, who is really on the throne of your heart? Who is really on the throne in your life? Who are you submitting to this morning? Who am I submitting to? As we consider this subject, God is greater. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the power of your word. Lord, I thank you for the fact, the truth, that these three words, they are always true. Lord, they never change. You are greater. You are greater. May we be reminded of that this morning. May you be glorified. May you be exalted. May we as your people be challenged by your word. We pray all of these things in the name which is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The very first thing I'd like you to notice with me from our text is that we learn the lesson that God doesn't promise a fair fight. God doesn't promise a fair fight. Look at verse 13. Elihu asked the question, he asked, why dost thou strive against him? Why do you strive against him? The word strive in this verse means to contend, or as the, the original uh, Hebrew, the image that was portrayed was to grapple or to wrestle with, wrestling, grappling with somebody. The point that Elihu is making here is, who are we to attempt to fight against God and his will? You know, in our lives, we know as Christians that there is spiritual warfare. We know that. Paul tells us about it. The Bible makes that very clear. There is spiritual warfare. There are spiritual battles constantly that we deal with. Namely, this flesh. The selfish desires of this flesh. There's, there's spiritual warfare around us with society and the influences of the kingdom of darkness. Sometimes we as Christians, we are also prone to be like Jacob, wrestling with God. Wrestling with God's will. Wrestling, fighting against God's word. Elihu is asking this question, who are we to grapple with God? Who are we to fight against God in his word, in his will? As the high king of heaven, God has every tool at his disposal. To steadily and carefully whittle us down until we finally yield our lives to his control and proclaim his glory, not ours. I dare say that one of the greatest fallacies prevalent in American Christianity today is the, the line that we often use when a brother or a sister in Christ is going through a difficult ordeal, a trial. There's those battles too, right? There's trials. Oftentimes we'll use the line, we've used the old trope, I'm sure many of us, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And it sounds sweet, it sounds encouraging, it goes great on a day spring card, right? Probably goes great on Instagram too. 
And I have no doubt that when we use this line, it is out of a sincere desire to help that other believer. The problem is it's just not true. The simple fact is, ladies and gentlemen, God does give us more than we can handle in this life. God does allow heavier burdens, heavier trials than we can handle. God in his supreme wisdom and knowledge does at times allow the weight of the burdens of this life to far exceed our own emotional strength, endurance, and fortitude. But he does so for a specific reason, and that is to cause us to lean on him. Because no burden, no trial is too big for him. Consider for a moment Gideon, whose army was continuously whittled down until he had a mere 300 men to follow him in war against an army which scripture describes as locust grasshoppers for multitude. We make much ado about how Gideon's army was shrank. You know, they bent on their knee and they did this and this implies this and then those who did this well that means this it's a picture of that the point is not that the point is not how they were whittled down the point is that they were the point is is that God whittled that army down also that Gideon and his soldiers with him would lean on God for victory so that God would get the glory not they themselves consider Jeremiah who saw his entire world torn apart by Babylonian conquest. His eyes beheld his people suffer. The city that he had lived in was destroyed. The survivors were carried off into slavery, many of them. In the midst of that low moment, lowest moment of his life, he wrote the words of praise to God, Great is thy faithfulness. Consider also Paul. Paul, who was given a thorn in the flesh to struggle and wrestle against, he repeatedly, by his own admission, begged God to remove it, only for the Lord to reveal that when Paul was physically weak, he was stronger in the grace of God. Look at the subject of this book. Subject, of course, being Christ, as he is with every book, but the human subject is who I'm referring to. Job, the human subject. Ladies and gentlemen, God allowed Job to suffer, not what he could handle in his own strength, not what he could endure in his own emotional fortitude or whatever, but so much more than he could ever bear. I mean, it's bad enough when your entire wealth is gone, and there's really no human-engineered way possible to recreate or replace it. I mean, he can't just go out like Elon Musk and start a new business that just automatically succeeds, right? That ain't happening. It's debilitating, too, to have your health broken to the point that your own friends are evidently ashamed to look at you. But, Ladies and gentlemen, to lose also all of your children in one sudden fell swoop, that is far more than even he can handle. And we know this because he cries out and laments the day of his birth. If he hadn't been born, he wouldn't have suffered all of these things. The fact is, although Job is a godly man, his view of God has been, it's, it's been a bit off throughout much of this book. 
You see, much like his three friends, Job has demonstrated a pretty narrow, limited theology that does not leave room for the fact that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are higher. His nature is perfect. His wisdom is eternal. And we often attempt to essentially project our fallen self-image on God. We do it a lot if we would admit it. And we sometimes think, well, God acts just like us. He gets cranky and unreasonable just as we do. Instead of trying to see life from God's perspective, our natural tendency is to view God and even judge his ways according to our own human standards, according to our own fallen nature. Elihu's words remind us that there is no point in striving or contending with God. Who are we to assume? Who are we to kick against the pricks? Who are we to assume that God reacts as we do? The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, God doesn't react. God acts. God acts. He is either sovereign or he is not. And we must approach him as the ruler of all things who knows what is best for us. Even if we don't understand it. Ray Steadman in his book wrote, Behind every act of God is a loving heart, and he always acts in accordance with his loving nature. When we fail to acknowledge his wisdom and his love, it is we who are in error, not God. Sometimes we're going through that battle and we want to blame God. Remember that God is always loving with his children, even when he he must chastise and chasten us. He is still doing so as a loving heavenly father. How can we ever challenge the creator who made us and who redeemed us as his people? With one simple statement, Elihu lays the whole matter of surrender to God to rest. God is greater than man. Secondly, God doesn't owe us an answer. God doesn't always fight fair. God doesn't owe us an answer. Look at verse 13 again. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Now, thankfully, unlike they did in those days, we have the complete written word of God, which we'll get to more in a moment. But understand, the language which Elihu uses here is interesting to take note of. He's essentially saying that God doesn't give account of his business. How many of you who are here, how many of you are accountable to somebody? Maybe you're accountable to somebody at work. Maybe you're accountable to your, your spouse. You know, why'd you spend this money there? We were saving that money. Whatever it may be. Perhaps you're accountable to a, a CPA or you're given a level of responsibility over a fund or a budget. And as you use that fund, you, you have to keep receipts. You have to report all expenses. You have to uh, send them in in an email or keep a paper account or whatever. But you have to keep account and give it to a bookkeeper or whoever it may be. We oftentimes joke at our church, we have a Christian school there, and there's, there's a lot of, of accounting and stuff that goes on with that. And we oftentimes joke in the office that it's not the pastor who leads. It's not the pastor who's in charge. It's actually the bookkeeper. The bookkeeper is the one in charge. That's the one you need to be afraid of. That's the one you need to worry about, right? Getting the receipts into the bookkeeper on time. But oftentimes we have somebody who we are accountable to. 
Somebody who we have to explain. By the way, the pastor also has to get the receipts into the bookkeeper. So see, it's not the pastor that's in charge, right? We have to explain certain expenses and why different purchases were necessary at times, don't we? We're accountable. God doesn't have that or need any of that, though. Nobody that he has to give account to. Nobody that he has to to, uh, uh, seek counsel from. Nobody that he has to get instruction or advice from. What he chooses to do in this world and in our lives is between himself and no one else. Again, thankfully, unlike Job and Elihu and the three miserable comforters, we have the complete word of God. We have his written revelation to us. In fact, we have the benefit of looking back at this entire book, looking at the climactic conclusion to the book of Job. As many of you know, it ends in in a rather huge way, a one-way discussion between God in which he speaks to Job. All of that begins once Elihu is finished speaking. Once God begins to speak, though, the interesting thing is, is that every bit of human reasoning, every attempt to explain what has happened to Job, it's silenced. In fact, look at chapter 38, verse 1. Chapter 38, verse 1, the Bible says, And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. It's a pretty climactic conclusion to the book. As God says, gird up your loins like a man. Stand up and I will answer you. Stand up and I will tell you. I will speak. In the end, Job never really receives a direct answer from God as to why he suffered. As far as we know, Job, there's no indication that God ever said, yeah, Satan came and Satan was questioning and hurling accusations. As far as we know, he never heard that. As far as we know, he never heard a definitive reason as to why he lost all that he did. What he did get is a number of challenging questions from God, including this. Look at verse 22. Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow? Or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail? God asked Job, have you entered into or studied or examined or found a way to explain the treasure which is seen in in snow, the treasures of the snow? And of course, every one of us, who is a born Floridian or a naturalized Floridian, immediately says, ew, snow, it's gross. But I think still we all understand the Lord's point here. We've all heard, whether it's on National Geographic or through reading Wikipedia, that every snowflake is different. Every snowflake is unique. Each of them designed that way by a master creator who is far greater. Look at verse 24 here. It says, by what way is the light parted, which scattereth the east wind upon the earth? Who hath divided a watercourse for the overflowing of waters, or a way for the lightning of thunder, to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness wherein there is no man, to satisfy the desolate and waste around, and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth? Hath the rain a father? Or who hath begotten the drops of dew? On and on, God is asking these challenging questions. Who drops the rain where no man or woman lives? 
Who drops the rain on the desolate parts of the earth? Who parts these things? Who does this? Verse 33, knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? Look at verse 35. I love this one. Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, here we are. It's kind of like, you know, a scene from Marvel, like Thor sending out lightnings. God is like, who sends the lightnings? Can you send the lightnings? And have the lightning bolt say, hey, here I am. Hey, I'm over here. Does the lightning respond to you? Does the lightning do what you tell it to do, Job? On and on, God challenges Job with these questions. Who is it that does this? Who is it that is capable of this? God doesn't always give us a fair fight. God doesn't owe us an answer, although thankfully, again, in his word, we have it, and he gives most of them to us. Thirdly and finally, though, God doesn't leave us in the dark. Look at verse 14. He says, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. Elihu, he looks at these four older men, and he says, God speaks, but man doesn't perceive it. Man doesn't regard it, as that word means, implies. In other words, we oftentimes ignore or look past what God says when he speaks. Let me put it this way. We have allowed ourselves to become convinced that God owes us an immediate answer to our prayers or to our questions in life. Why, God? Why'd you let this happen, God? Why did this take place, God? Why did this happen in the country? Why did that happen in the country? Why all of these things? Why, why this is happening? Why is, is this happened to my job? Why is this happened to my health? Why did that happen to that Christian over there? We, we, we've convinced ourselves that God owes us an answer to all of these questions in life. We think that he owes us an answer in our own terms. The fact is, God doesn't owe us anything. More often than not, he's already given us an answer. The problem is we aren't listening or we aren't satisfied with it. But he's already given us an answer or the answer to the questions that we have in life. Look at verse 15. In a dream and a vision of the night when deep sleep falleth upon men, and slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction. Elihu tells him that one of the ways that God spoke, at least in those days, and we see it in others in the Old Testament, was in dreams, visions. You know, with the complete word of God, such things are totally unnecessary. Paul attests to this in his letter to the church at Corinth when he tells them that love, charity, faith, and hope would continue on for eternity, but prophecy, visions would come to an end. Here's the point for us. For us as children of God today, we have the word of God. It is God's revelation to us. It is his message. It is his love letter. It is his instruction. It is his commands for us. God speaks to us through it. The trouble is, we typically don't listen. Or we twist his message. Or allow another preacher to, or teacher to twist his message into something that we want it to say instead. Alistair Begg made the statement, he said, We believe in what is essentially a divine encounter. 
That is through the reading of the word, through the teaching of the word of God, God will speak to us through the ministry of the spirit of God. Any of us who are a child of God have been in that place where through circumstances in life, through his still small voice speaking to our heart, through his word most of all, we knew that God wasn't leaving us in the dark. If you have walked with God, then you've been in that place where in the silence, his spirit convicts you and impresses upon you, not in an audible voice or from a whirlwind, although that would be pretty terrifyingly cool, but in the stillness and silence of your soul. Look at verse 1 of chapter 38, and we'll close with this. Chapter 38, verse 1. After all of this reasoning, debating between Job, his three miserable comforters, Elihu speaking, getting things mostly right, mostly We come to verse 1 of chapter 38. The Bible says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, that although God never really gave Job an answer as to why he suffered as he did all the things that he lost, God gave this suffering saint something greater. He gave him himself. Himself. God appears on the scene, a miraculous thing in the Old Testament. Miraculous. He gives Job himself. He speaks to Job himself. May I remind you that in the New Testament we learn Jesus is greater than Abraham. We learn that Jesus is greater than Moses. We learn that Jesus is greater than Solomon. We learn that Jesus is greater than Jonah. We learn that Jesus is greater than the temple of Jerusalem was. We learn that Jesus is greater than our own heart, which is deceitful and doubting. Not to mention, as the I am, he is God. In other words, if you have the Son, if you have Christ this morning, then you literally have, as as Isaiah promised, God with you, Emmanuel. There are countless examples in the page of the Scripture in which God does not provide verbal answers for life's trials, life's hardships, life's heartache. Rather, what God does is provide himself. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our supreme objective. It is Him. It is not our calling to have all of the answers or to have a solution for everything that we or others may face. Our objective, our calling as Christians, is to know and follow and pursue after God. This is the prize that Paul wrote about to the church at Philippi. It is to know Him to know him more, to know him more deeply through his word. The story is told of a plane which was going through some terrible turbulence. A storm was raging outside the windows and the passengers were in obvious terror. In the midst of them all was a little girl. A little girl sitting there who was not even slightly moved by the fear that gripped everyone else around her. 
She was calmly humming a song, coloring in a book, while everyone else was gripped with terror. Everyone else was squeezing the armrests of their chairs. Finally, a, ner- a man, nervously, he looked over at her and he said, I'm, I'm very impressed by you because you're not afraid. Why is it that you are so calm when all the rest of us are so worried? Without even hesitating, the little girl responded by saying, I guess, I guess it's because my daddy is the pilot and theirs isn't. If you haven't heard that illustration before, you, you haven't been listening to Pastor B's messages because I totally stole it from one of his old ones. <laughs> you know, I wish that I could tell you that any trouble we face in this life, it's going to all get better one day. It will in eternity. But I wish I could tell you that here in this life, it's going to get better. going to get better here in this life. Maybe soon. Send enough money to this certain preacher and pray enough prayers and it'll all get better. I wish we could do that, but that's not true. I wish I could tell you this morning that we'll soon understand why we endured it. Oftentimes we say that in heaven we'll know it all. I personally, I don't think we'll care the moment we're in heaven because we're going to be with him in perfection. As Paul said, the, the things we suffer in this life, they are not even worthy to be compared to that. What I can do this morning is leave you with this. If you're a child of God through faith in Christ, then you have something far better than anything I could tell you or any preacher on a podcast or the TV could tell you. You have Christ in and with you. As Paul wrote, Christ in you, the hope of glory. May God help us to be careful making presumptions about his ways. He who is greater will reveal things in his own timing and as he sees fit. But our calling as Christians is to trust and to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the completeness of it. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit who speaks to us, convicts us, instructs us through it. Lord, we thank you that if we are your child today, if we have been saved through faith, through the grace of God, we have your presence ever with us. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. Never to leave us, never to forsake us. God, may we learn more and more to lean on you. We pray these things in your name. The heads bowed and our eyes closed, knowing looking around for a moment. I know the Lord has spoken to my heart immensely. Two things in life we're certain of is there's change and confusion. Because we're not supposed to for tomorrow because we don't know what tomorrow may bring forth. We don't know what a day may bring forth. We don't know the very next step. We don't know the very next day what could happen. But we know the one who does. And many times we blame, we criticize, we doubt. But as one disciple said, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. 
Sometimes we believe faith is simply trusting in things we already know about God, but faith is also trusting everything that we don't, including our own lives. The Lord has spoken to your heart as a testimony. Say, Brother Andy, the Lord has spoken to me in some measure. I am a child of God. Would you raise your hand as a testimony to the Lord? God bless you. God bless you. I raise my hand as well. Some of you might this morning say, Brother Andy, I don't know truly what it even means to have faith. Well, the good news is you can. A lot of times we prevent ourselves coming to God because we refuse to come to God on his terms instead of our own. Sometimes we think we have to be good enough. Sometimes we have to be strong enough. Sometimes we think we have to understand enough to come to God. But all a thief on a cross did is look to Jesus Christ and acknowledge who he was, which is a sinner, and who Christ was. This man does not deserve to be up here. And all he wished was to be with him. And the Lord granted it. And maybe someone this morning said, Brother Andy, I don't know I've ever trusted Christ as my Savior. Would you just, I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. So would you pray for me, please? I don't know if I've ever put my faith, my trust in God. Would you raise your hand just for a moment? Amen. God bless you. We're going to time invitation as they're already playing the hymn. Have thine own way, Lord. As Brother Tolson comes, I encourage you, if the Lord has spoken to your heart as he's done mine, do some business with him this morning as he comes. Heavenly Father, we ask you, please bless this invitation, we pray. Helps to come to you, truly, to understand the most powerful admonition in your word, which is the just shall live by faith. Help us, Lord, to not hesitate or be presumptuous or even to doubt, to fully, completely, and without reservation, come what may, to throw ourselves into your arms in faith and trust. Help us, Lord, in all circumstance to be a people of faith. We pray with these things in Jesus' name. Amen.